A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now they had come near Jerusalem and reached Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village before you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Release them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this. The son of woman needs them, and they will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your sovereign is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that were going before him and the one following were shouting, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Holy One. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shook, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen, and good morning, everyone. Did y'all get your signs when you came in? I want you to grab those right now. We're going to do something quick. Oh, you got that one? All right. I'm going to need you to stand as you are able, in body or in spirit, and hold up your signs and repeat after me. Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! All right, have a seat. Happy Palm Sunday, everyone. Now, some of you might have noticed that your uh, your palms got a little, your palm fronds got a little bit of an update. Just added some color, a modern twist. Um, I want to talk to you about Palm Sunday. This is one of my favorite Sundays of the year here at Zao and in any place celebrating the movement, life, teachings, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, we call it Protest Sunday here, and I think that that will become clearer as we go. Uh, but before we get into Palm Sunday, I want to talk to you about hyper-spiritualization, and Rosa Parks. I'm sure this is what you expected. <laughs> so, hyper-spiritualization is a problem that happens in the gospel. We've talked here before about a process called Santa Clausification. Santa Clausification. It's the, it's the process by which a radical, powerful figure, one of the most uh, commonly cited with this, this phenomenon is Martin Luther King, gets uh, flattened 
and niceified and turned into a mythology that's palatable to power, right? So this is the process by which we see Martin Luther King, who was uh, wildly radical, um, was on uh, all of these FBI lists, was targeted by COINTELPRO, was radicalizing a movement um, of black people and then subsequently of all underclass people against capitalism and militarism, reduced to a figure that says we should all be nice to each other and whose quotes are hand-selected out of context and tweeted out by the U.S. military on King Day. That is Santa Clausification. It's something that we talk about a lot with Jesus here because that's what happens to Jesus in our culture as well, right? That's how we get blue-eyed or blonde-haired surfer Jesus. That's how we get precious moments, everyone just be nice to each other, Jesus. Sound familiar? But the real Jesus that we see in the scriptures was a brown-skinned, radical peasant organizer opposing the Roman Empire. And we see that throughout every piece of his ministry. And it comes into this beautiful moment of wild culmination on Palm Sunday. But I didn't tell you I wanted to talk about Santa Clausification. I wanted to talk about Rosa Parks and hyper-spiritualization. Because this is another problem that we see with radical movements. Now let's remember Rosa Parks. What do we hear about Rosa Parks? What are we taught about Rosa Parks from kind of the mainstream dominant empire narrative? What happened? She's so tired. She's so tired. She had a long day at work. She's an old lady. She didn't want to stand up. But we know that this is a lie, right? And if we don't know this is a lie, welcome to a more accurate history. Rosa Parks was not just a tired old lady who had enough one day and refused to stand up on a segregated bus. Rosa Parks, at the day of her arrest, was 42 years old. And I get it that Gen Z is coming up on us quick, but I would like to say that that is not old. <laughs> All right? <laughs> My body might feel old, but come on now. Rosa Parks was also an active member and chapter secretary of the Montgomery NAACP for 12 years. She had been organizing with other movement leadership. They were already planning a bus boycott. They knew that they would need a face, a story, a narrative to go along with that bus boycott. And actually, she wasn't the first one to get arrested. Claudette Colvin had been arrested several months prior for doing the same thing at just 15 years old. Incredible human being. And she didn't get the attention she deserved because other movement leaders did not consider her the ideal face for the campaign due to colorism, ageism, and misogyny. But Rosa had been advocating for Claudette. Rosa had been organizing bail funds for Claudette and other women who had been arrested. So when, on the day that Rosa was arrested, she was deeply embedded in an organized campaign that had goals, that had demands, and that was getting things moving. She was known for her gravitas and authority. She had urged other passengers to stay with her on that day when they were asked to move. And they didn't, <laughs> but she stayed anyway. And on that, that day that she was arrested, she then 
continued to work with movement leaders. She became the face of that campaign she had helped to organize, and it was launched. The mythology that Rosa was just a tired woman who had had enough, who didn't want to get up that day, and it was the right moment and the right time. What does that mythology do for the empire? This mythology taps on something that's true. Evil always takes something that's true and twists it. The true thing is the work of the Holy Spirit. The true thing is the power of God's love breaking in to the real historical moments of our lives, participating with us in liberation. The truth of that mythology is there was something special about that day. It was holy. It was sanctified. But Rosa was a prophet. And it wasn't just some mysterious moment. It was planned and organized. And that mythology that says that it was just this happenstance takes that truth of a powerful moment and twists it, transforms it to serve empire. Because if Rosa was just an old lady who had a feeling in the right moment, what does that teach us about what resistance requires? Just waiting, waiting for the right feeling, the right moment, the right leader to emerge. Instead of planning, and organizing deliberately for change for years and years. Now, if this is history that you already know, that's fantastic. And if it's not, welcome, and I encourage you to explore it some more. There is so much radical history that has been erased by empire so that we forget what it takes to resist evil and to overthrow the mechanisms of violence and one more of those erasures is the rewriting of Palm Sunday. So we're going to do that exercise again. What are we told about Palm Sunday? What have we been taught about the nature of Palm Sunday? It was a parade, right? A celebration, a triumphal entry. This is the moment when everybody liked Jesus. Five days later, they would turn on him for no good reason. <laughs> Probably just the evil in their hearts. People are fickle that way. But today, a spontaneous, God-given eruption of joy that fulfilled the prophecies as if by magic, which is probably just a nice moment that God gave Jesus before a really hard week. Okay, so that's our mythology. And the truth of it is that God is at work in a powerful, mysterious, almost magical way at Palm Sunday. But there is a whole lot more behind it. And we are going to unpack that today. You ready? All right. Okay. So we need some context. Jerusalem was a holy city. The holy city. The holiest city at the holiest time of year. This was Passover. Now, during Passover, thousands of people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And what they were celebrating, Passover is something that Amy Jill Levine calls the Feast of Freedom. When we celebrate communion each week, one of the things that I, I, I say over the elements is we remember that on that night, Jesus and his beloveds were telling the story of God's liberating love. That's not just nice, shiny words. That is a specific reference. They're telling the story of God's liberating love because they were celebrating Passover. 
They were celebrating the Feast of Freedom. That story of God's liberating love is the story of the God-aided rebellion and escape of enslaved Jews from Egypt. So this radical tradition of liberation that we have, it doesn't originate with Jesus. That is the foundation of God's relationship with the Jewish people. The Jewish people were oppressed and enslaved. And Passover is the celebration of that moment in history where God broke in with the people to resist enslavement and to escape into freedom. The Feast of Freedom, this is Passover. The Jewish people were a liberation people, and they were celebrating that at the most important time of the year, and they were doing it under active occupation in Rome. Now, Everybody got a little itchy on Passover because it's hard to celebrate freedom when you are being occupied. And so that occupation stands in stark contrast with the identity and history of the Jewish people and the promise of liberation in their tradition. There was a history of riots during Passover. And so there were always a huge increased police presence in Jerusalem at this time. Now, the Romans didn't just, like, subtly add more soldiers to the streets. They liked to really do it up. And so, on that day, that same day that we have this spontaneous eruption of joy, you have a procession into the city from the west. This is Pontius Pilate and all of his crew coming in from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Full military regalia. This is like a big military procession. Horses, chariots, banners, drums, mounted soldiers and foot soldiers, all of them in armor and carrying weapons. This is an enormous flex of imperial power. It is meant to communicate that like, yeah, you can play your religious pretend, but we're the real gods here by the power of might and violence. You may have resisted the Egyptians, but you will not resist Rome. That was the communication of this procession. They didn't do it quietly. It was marching through the streets to remind everybody what the order of the day was. And this is the stage. This is the setting for Palm Sunday that gets completely erased. On that day, there was another procession. And the Jesus procession was in stark contrast to the procession of the military. So whereas Pontius Pilate and the military were coming in from the west, Jesus and his people came in from the east. And they were squaring off directly with the Roman guard. Now, this procession, this protest, is rich, so rich with imagery and references. We got the donkey, we got the cloaks, we got the palms, we got the chanting, and every single one of those had meaning. So we'll start with the donkey. This one can feel like the biggest switcheroo because it even says in the text like, oh, you'll see, lo and behold, coming in humble on a donkey right? So we're like, oh yeah, humble. Jesus is so humble. But like, humble here does not mean meek. Humble does not mean like chill and demurring. Like, 
oh, stop, me, the king? No, you shouldn't. Like, that is not what this means. That is not what humble means in this context. In Hebrew, humble is about origins. Humble is about economic status. It's about humble beginnings. It meant poor. It meant poor. Look at your poor peasant king. And notice, king. This text that Matthew references from Zechariah, the one that is being fulfilled in this moment, in this procession, it's a coronation text, which is to say, it is the text related to crowning a new king. Behold your king, humble this time, And it stands in such stark contrast because you have this aggressive, powerful, economically dominant, weaponized military procession. And then you have Jesus coming in from the the east. And like that matters too. Pontius Pilate is coming in from the west from his beach house, right? He didn't want to live in Jerusalem, ew, the dirty city. So he set up camp in that new, fancy, coastal town, Caesarea Matramine, and, and came in for his job, like, all right. But he's coming in from his beach town with his wealth and military power. Where's Jesus coming in from? What's east of Jerusalem? It's the peasants. It is the rural areas where Jesus has been, according to the Gospel of John, organizing and radicalizing peasants for three years. So Jesus has his own crew too, and it is a very different vibe. So you have, on the one hand, the horses, the chariots. On the other hand, the scripturally fulfilled peasant king coming in on a donkey to be crowned. This is not humble like we've been told. This is power of a different form. Now, we also then have these cloaks, right? People are like throwing their cloaks on the donkeys, throwing their cloaks on the ground. We have this sort of peasant red carpet. And you start to get this vibe that it's almost just like mocking, right? Not mocking Jesus, mocking Rome. Because we, you have your fancy stuff? Sure, yeah, we'll, we'll lay out a red carpet for our king. And one of the dynamics we see here, we see this, this king, this, this power, this Rome that thinks it's in charge. And we see Jesus kind of putting on those trappings, being like, oh, you want to play? You want to play pretend about power? We can do that too. And in all of our protest work, one of the things that I have learned and loved to learn is that power, power can tolerate being yelled at, but power hates to be mocked. Power hates to be mocked. And so Jesus and his people are coming in real, real mocking and saying, like, you don't even know. You don't even know what power is. And so from underneath the underclass, the peasants, those who have been forgotten or or shoved down or occupied or killed under this occupation, under this military might, are saying, you don't even know. You don't even know what real power is. Real power is coming in. Real power is coming into the city of Jerusalem, and it looks really different. It is not through violence. It is not through military might. But the kingdom, the true kingdom, led by King Jesus, is coming in now, and you won't even recognize it. Not even when we dress it up for your games. The palms. 
Now, I love protest signs as modern palms, but even those palm fronds had meaning. The palm fronds were not just, again, some spontaneous like, ooh, wave it in the sky, you know? The palm fronds had a very specific image reference because before the Roman occupation, the Hebrew people had their own currency. Under occupation, they had to use Roman currency, which was stamped with the picture of Caesar. But before occupation, they had their own currency. And who was on their, on their currency? The Hebrew people did not use graven images of human beings or of God. And so on their currency was palm fronds. Palm fronds, a palm branch on a coin. Waving those palm fronds was a political and economic statement. Because what is occupation if not, an ulti if not ultimately an engine for economic exploitation? And so even with those palm fronds, they are, they are declaring we will be free. We will be free. Our wealth, our wisdom, our tradition will outlast your violence. All of this was planned and organized. So why, why have we been so thoroughly disabused of that? Like, why, how have we forgotten how organized this was? Some of it has to do with scripture and the way that we have been taught to hyper-spiritualize scripture. The scripture says, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village before you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Release them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the son of woman needs them. They will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. And it feels fancy, right? It's like, this is spontaneous. They're going. The things that they need are just sort of appearing before them. It's all in bible language. So it's like, yeah, it must have just kind of come into being by magic. But I'm going to tell you another story. When the spring had come, but there was yet snow on the ground, Jonah sent out the beloved community leader, Andy, saying to her, go to the digicopy on Van Buren. There you will immediately find hundreds of brightly colored protest signs. Take them and bring them to me. If anyone asks who you are and what you are doing, tell them I sent you, and Victor will offer the signs immediately. <laughs> Repay their kindness using the Zao debit card so that I don't have to file for reimbursement. <laughs> this stuff is orchestrated, yeah? This is planned, and that doesn't make it less holy. It makes it holy in a fundamentally different way. It makes it holy in a way that is invitational, that God says, you can do this too. I'm teaching you. I'm showing you the way. Plan, deliberate, organize, resist. You got this. You don't need to wait for some magic feeling. You don't need to wait for some special leader. I came already. I taught you. Do as I do. Plan, organize, resist. This is the yeast we were talking about last week. There is truth to the black mustard seed that buries itself underground and springs up as if out of nowhere and takes over spontaneously, wildly. There is truth in the holy power moving through the earth at all times and bringing the kingdom into being. But there is also truth 
And the woman who puts yeast in the flour and mixes and kneads and plots and plans and has recipes and, and orchestrates the kingdom into being. And Palm Sunday, we see Jesus demonstrating step by step what it means to be the woman baking, what it means to experience the kingdom as yeast infiltrating, not by chance, but by thoughtful, collective resistance through organizing. The final symbol of this protest that we're going to talk about today is that chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is another word that has just become church language to us, right? What does Hosanna even mean? Something about God, probably, <laughs> right? Like, do you know what it means? I had to look it up. Hosanna is incredible, though. Hosanna is something that did become so synonymous with, with worship that the, the origins did kind of get melted and molded. But at this time, it already had accumulated two really important meanings. One was save, please. Save, please. God, save us. Right? This wasn't just sort of like, God, you're great. It was, God, save us. We are under occupation. God, save us. The Roman military is coming in from the other side of the city. God, save us. You saved us before. We need you to do it again. God, save us. Hosanna. And, and, it meant salvation, thank you. Salvation, thank you. God, we know you are good. Salvation, thank you. Your king has come. Salvation, thank you. We know the empire will fall. And in this way, Hosanna to me feels like my favorite modern protest chant. We believe that we will win. We believe that we will win. We believe that we will win acknowledges that there is a fight at hand. We believe that we will win acknowledges that there is violence and pain and oppression right here, right now. We believe that we will win names that we are in a fight but it also names that we trust in the end of things, that we trust that love and liberation will win in the end, that we trust that solidarity is a holy act that leads us to the kingdom. This is the tension of the kingdom already here and not yet, that things are not well, that we are in need of salvation, and that salvation has arrived. And in this moment, we name him Jesus. We believe that we will win. And so... Just to recap that picture for you, on this holy day, in this holy place, under contested authority, you have from the West, from wealth, from military might, from occupying power, the Romans coming in and flexing. And you have from the East, Jesus and the peasants he's been radicalizing and organizing for years, coming in, taking that same imagery and twisting it back into something from power from below. Cloaks on the ground, a donkey, a king from the peasant class coming and declaring liberation. Liberation, please. Liberation now. Liberation, thank you. We want to be a protest Sunday people. We need to hold that tension. We need to take to the streets. Every act of our faith must be connected both to the realities 
of our oppressive imperial world and to the promise of resurrection, the promise of the power of God, the liberation that we know is coming and is already here in us. We are a protest people and we follow Jesus into Jerusalem and we follow Jesus to the cross and into the resurrection. Will you stand with me to pray today in body or in spirit? Grab those signs. If you're at home and you don't have the signs we printed, just use a fist. Let us pray. Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Whose streets? Whose streets? Whose streets? Whose streets? We believe that we will win. 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 Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Amen. Amen.